Can you believe that it is now already mid-September? That hit me this week that we're already halfway through September. Uh, football season is beginning. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys kick off today, and everybody's expectations are probably low, but we'll see. Um, but it's already mid-September, which means that, that fall is here, kind of, a little bit. The weather doesn't quite understand that yet. But before we know it, we're going to blink, and it's also going to be Christmas. It's going to be Christmas soon. I don't know if you realize that, but it's going to quickly approach, and that was kind of a shock to me this week. And so, uh, just for fun, I spent a little bit of time, I found an article online that listed the most popular Christmas presents every year since 1970. The most popular Christmas presents every year since 1970. And here's what I want to do just for a little bit of fun this morning. I'm going to list off, not every year, year by year, but I'm going to give you a few years, a few of the major gifts. And what I want you to do for fun is if you either gave or received one of these gifts, just raise your hand, okay? If you either gave or received one of these of the most popular gifts of Christmas from 1970 to now, just raise your hand. So to begin, 1970, 71, and 72. 1970 was a Nerf ball, 1971 a Etch-a-Sketch, and 1972 an Easy Bake Oven. How many of you ever gave or received a Nerf ball, an Etch-a-Sketch, or an Easy Bake Oven? Quite a few hands, all right. Um, <clears throat> if you fast forward a few years, 1975, was a pet rock. <laughs> Anybody get or receive a pet rock? All right. Now, side note, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but parents, I think we need to bring this back. Um, if we go in together and agree, then we can tell our kids, listen, all the kids are getting this this Christmas. It's the new cool thing. Uh, but don't buy one, just literally go get a rock. I think it'd be fantastic. Um, but yeah, 1975, Pet Rock, 1980, Rubik's Cube, 1983, Cabbage Patch Doll, or a G.I. Joe. So how many of you got a Pet Rock, a Rubik's Cube, or a Cabbage Patch Doll, or G.I. Joe figurine? Again, quite a few hands. These are popular gifts. Starting in 1988, we came to a whole new era in Christmas gifts. In 1988, it was a Nintendo... 92, a Super Nintendo, 1997, a Nintendo 64, and then you got PlayStation, Xbox, and all of those. How many of you ever, uh, still quite a few hands. Man, I need to come to your house at Christmas. Those are good gifts. Quite an upgrade from a pet rock. <laughs> then in the 2000s, there was a whole new era of gift giving. 2001, iPod, 2008, iPhone, 2010, iPad. How many of you gave or received um, still a lot of hands. Um, I'm amazed here. But okay, around 2012 to 2018, I couldn't nail down an exact date. But somewhere in 2012 to 2018, a new gift hit the market that has been the number one gift every year since. The gift card. <laughs> The gift card. 
In fact, last Christmas, 2022, 67% of people plan to purchase a gift card for Christmas. Gift cards have become the number one gift because gift cards are so easy to give and most people like to receive a gift card because a gift card basically says, listen, just get whatever you want, right? Just here's some money, just get whatever you want. And we all kind of like that, right? Just kind of get whatever you want. This morning, I want to ask you a question, and that is, if God gave you, gave you a gift card, what would you want? If Jesus came to you and asked the question, that is the title of our sermon this morning, if Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you, how would you reply? What would you ask for? Maybe you'd ask for money but hopefully you were here last week for the sermon last week. Maybe some of us would ask for fame, for a little glory, power, authority. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want you to open your Bible up to Mark chapter 10 as we take a look at what two people how they reply to that question when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? First, we're going to take a look at a story of two disciples, James and John, and they ask Jesus to be great. That's number one on your outline. Then number two on your outline, we're going to see the story of a blind man named Bartimaeus when Jesus asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? He wants to receive mercy. Again, grab your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Let's take a look. Number one on your outline, James and John asked Jesus to be great. Let's look first at Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed We're fearful. Let's pause right here. As we jump into these verses, I want you to first notice this phrase there in verse 32. It says, they were on the road. They were on the road. If you've been with us in our study of the Gospel of Mark, you can probably guess what this literally says. It literally says, they were on the way. This is a repeated phrase we've been seeing throughout our study of the Gospel of Mark. I want you to remember that at this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is on his way south. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross. And this repeated phrase, on the road, on the way, we see over and over again. Jesus is now getting really close to Passion Week, to his time to lay down his life. And here, John Mark tells us that they, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the way going up to Jerusalem. Notice Jesus is not alone. There's a number of untold people, uh, unnamed people with him. And notice they, the people, the end of verse 32, they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. Some of those who are with Jesus are amazed and others are fearful. We're, we're not told why, but perhaps it's because of what Jesus says at the end of verse 32. John Mark tells us, and again, he, Jesus, took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Verse 33 saying, 
Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. We come now to the third of Jesus' passion predictions recorded here in the Gospel of Mark. And this third passion prediction is by far the most detailed. In fact, there are eight future tense verbs describing what Jesus will face once he gets on the way to Jerusalem. Eight future tense words describing the fate that Jesus will face. Notice, he will be delivered to the chiefs, chief priests and scribes. And they, the chief priests and scribes, will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles will mock him, will spit on him, will scourge him, will kill him. But then the eighth will, the most climactic, the most important, is he will rise again. Jesus here gives this vivid, detailed description of what's going to take place once they get to Jerusalem. But once again, Like we've seen before when Jesus predicts his death, his disciples instead start to focus on themselves. Notice the next verse, verse 35. After this very vivid, detailed description of his death and resurrection, verse 35 says, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, for reasons we'll see here in a little bit, we can assume that James and John said this to Jesus privately. But also, interestingly, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that actually it's James and John's mom who asked this question. They send their mommy to ask Jesus this question. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is a gift card request, right? I'm reminded sometimes of kids. I'm reminded of my kids or even myself as a kid. Sometimes kids go up to their parents and they say something like, I want to ask you a question, but you have to promise to say yes. Parents never say yes. Uh, That's a trap if you don't know it. But it's similar here. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. But notice Jesus' reply there in verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Take note of this question. We're going to see it again here in a little bit. What do you want me to do for you? And notice how they reply, verse 37. They, James and John, said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right, and one on your left in your glory. 
the gift card request here, James and John, they come to Jesus and what they want is for one to sit on his right, one to sit on his left in his glory. Now, what does this mean? The, the, the place at the right hand was the place of highest position, highest honor, highest authority. And the place on the left was the second most glorious, authoritative position. James and John here in asking to sit on Jesus' right hand or on his left are asking for the two places of highest honor and authority in his glory in the messianic kingdom. And at first, we might seem, okay, well, that's fine. That seems like an innocent request. But as we'll see here in a little bit, when Jesus replies to them, we're going to see that really what James and John were after was authority. They were wanting the authority that comes with those positions. They wanted authority. One of the main things we see in all of these verses is this, this desire for authority, for position, for prestige. And at first, when I, when I read these verses, I kind of chuckled inside. I mean, how could James and John be so silly as to try to jockey for position and authority with Jesus? At first, I laughed, but then I was convicted because I had to ask myself the convicting question, well, as silly as they might be, how silly is it for me to do the same thing? I jockey for position and status and authority on things that in 10,000 years are not going to matter at all, right? Like at least they were trying to jockey for position for eternal glory. I do it for things that in 10,000 years are going to fade away and who cares? James and John wanted authority though at the end of the day. But what they don't understand is that these positions they asked for Come by suffering and serving according to the will of God. Notice verse 38. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, real quick, Jesus uses a couple of images here. First of all, he uses the image of a cup. And uh, throughout the Old Testament, sometimes a cup was used very positively as a cup of joy, something that brings joy. But also at other times, the cup is a symbol, a sign of judgment. And I think that's how Jesus is using it here. Likewise, baptism sometimes pictures things very positively, but sometimes this idea of being baptized pictures the idea of being engulfed in waters of calamity, of literally like drowning. And that's what I think Jesus is asking here. Jesus knows that he's about to drink the cup of God's judgment in our place. He knows that he's about to endure the calamity of God's judgment on our behalf. He knows... That real greatness, real glory comes through suffering. That's exactly why, right, he's on his way to Jerusalem, why he's on his way to the cross. And so he says to his disciples, James and John, he says, listen, you don't, you don't know what you're asking for. But notice their reply, verse 39, when Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup? Are you willing to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Verse 39, they said to him, we are able. I love the confidence. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, but to sit on my right hand or on my left, this is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Jesus says, okay. And fast forward, you look at the life of James and John later, James will indeed drink the cup and be baptized with the baptism of Jesus, not in a salvific way, but he is going to give his life as the first martyr, literally giving his life again, not in a salvific way, but he lays down his life for Jesus. And John, the other disciple here in this passage, he will endure tons of persecution and even exile in his journey, his path of following Jesus on the way. But then Jesus says there in verse 40, listen, it's not mine to give this to sit on my right hand or on my left, but only for those for whom it has been prepared. Now at some point, apparently, the other disciples eavesdrop and they begin to hear this conversation between Jesus and James and John because notice verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. So overhearing this conversation, the other 10 disciples, other than James and John, they get indignant. They get angry. They don't take too kindly to this request from James and John. And their jealous reaction indicates that they probably too harbor these selfish ambitions. They too want the authority. They want the glory. They want to be great. They're just jealous that they didn't think of it first. Again, I think of kids, I think of myself as a kid. When you see other people get something you want, you say, hey, that's not fair. I should have thought of that. And that's the reaction we get here from the other disciples. So once again, and we've been seeing this now for a number of weeks, there's this kind of controversy or question that takes place, and then Jesus pulls all of his disciples aside, and he has a lesson for them that's really the heart of the passage. Let's take a look at the heart of the passage, verse 42, starting in verse 42. Calling them, the disciples, to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. This verse, by the way, is how I know that ultimately what James and John were after was power and authority for their own glory. When they asked Jesus to sit on his right and on his left, really what we see here, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus knows that ultimately what they were after is not eternal rewards, but they were after their own power, authority, and glory. Notice the, the repeated words and phrase here, rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. And they exercise authority over them. And Jesus here lays out, if you will, the way the world typically works, the way the fallen world works. People lord their authority over other people, and that's how the world defines greatness. The 
leaders, the people who are great in the world's eyes are those who have a lot of authority and exercise that authority over other people. But, verse 43, notice this, but it is not this way among you, Jesus says. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. This is Jesus' plan to make the disciples great again. That may have gone over your head. Um, But this is how Jesus defines true greatness here. Jesus says, if you want to know what's great, don't look to the world. Don't look at how the world defines greatness. If you want to be great, Jesus says, be a servant. If you want to be first, be a slave. This is how Jesus defines true greatness. And what better or what person can better exemplify true greatness than Jesus, which is why he says there in verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. See, after calling his disciples If they want to be great, they should be a servant. If they want to be first, they should be a slave. Then he uses himself as an example and what he's about to do on the cross on his way to Jerusalem. He says, for even the Son of Man, that's him, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This, by the way, is the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark. That Jesus, the person with the highest authority, the person who exemplifies true greatness in every way, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, also puts himself out there as the servant of servants, or deacon of deacons, actually. He came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. And to give his life, notice, a ransom for many. The word for ransom here describes the price of release and it pictures the idea of someone a slave or someone in bondage being purchased and being set free. And Jesus says here that he came to give his life as a ransom, that ransom payment for many. And the truth is every single one of us, we were in bondage to sin and to death We were captive to sin and to death, but Jesus came and laid down his life and purchased our redemption by his death on the cross. Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross paid the price that sets us free. This is, again, why he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to the cross to lay down his life to pay this ransom. I want to pause right here, and for those of you watching online or for those of you in the room, I want to ask you the question, have you ever believed in Jesus as your ransom for sin? 
If you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've not, I want to give you the opportunity right here in this room or watching online. If you've not put your faith in him, I want to invite you to trust in him and know that because of his death on the cross, you have been ransomed. You have been set free. Your sins are forgiven. You are now reconciled with the holy God. Again, that is the very reason why Jesus here in this passage is on his way to the cross. But again, Jesus, verse 45, he uses himself as an example there and his death on the cross is an example as a way to motivate his disciples, verses 43 and 44, if they want to become great to be a servant, if they want to be first, then they need to be a slave of all. This passage is about a motivation towards greatness in service for others. Greatness in service to others. Now, one of the greatest hotel chains in the United States and around the world is the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. I've never stayed there myself, um, but if you have a gift card, let me know. Um, <clears throat> but I've never stayed at the Ritz, but I hear that it's great because the Ritz-Carlton is known for one thing, and that is amazing service. There's a great book, by the way, uh, by Horst Schultz, uh, Excellence Wins. It's a remarkable leadership book. But in it, you, you really do begin to visualize what it might be if you were to stay at the Ritz-Carlton. The Ritz-Carlton is known that from the moment a person drives in and checks in the hotel until the moment they pull away and leave, they are treated with the best service that they have ever received from a hotel. And the Ritz-Carlton redefined what the hotel industry should be by redefining greatness in service. And Jesus here says that greatness, true greatness, not the way the world defines greatness, but true greatness is measured by our service. James and John wanted to be great, and they thought that being great meant that you have authority. They wanted authority. And likewise, the Roman culture, and remember Mark is writing to a Roman audience, they thrived on authority. And our culture, in many ways, also thrives on authority. We're all about authority and power and fame and celebrity status. Now last week I mentioned to you that money is in and of itself not evil, but money can be used either for evil or for good. And likewise, I want you to understand that authority is not in and of itself evil, but you can use whatever power and authority you have either for evil or for good. And what Jesus really is doing here is telling his disciples, listen, whatever you got, whatever power and authority prestige that you have, use it in service to other people. Again, I'd submit to you that like money, perhaps there's no other way, there's no other thing in which the ethics of our world clash so vigorously as the ethics of Jesus when it, than when it comes down to here. Like our world is built on this just grasping for power and authority, but Jesus redefines true greatness in a way that we're called to use our power, our position, our authority ultimately in the service of other people for his name. See, Jesus here is, is all about forming the disciples to embody a different kind of true greatness. 
So let me ask you, do you want to be great in Jesus' eyes? Forget the world. If you want to be great in Jesus' eyes, then use whatever power authority you have in service to other people in Jesus' name. And again, Jesus lifts up himself, verse 45, as the supreme example that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as we take a look at number two on your outline, we'll see how Jesus immediately demonstrates his service to others, literally on his way to Jerusalem. In his last recorded miracle in the Gospel of Mark before Passion Week, Jesus heals a blind man. Take a look at number two on your outline, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 46. You might think that Jesus had better things to do, But notice what he does. Verse 46 says, They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting, notice, by the road. Again, notice the last phrase there in verse 46, by the road. It's literally by the way. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, and he now encounters a blind beggar on the way or beside the way. Bartimaeus is beside the way way, as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. Notice there, um, in and around Jericho. Jericho was the final stop you would make before that 3,000-foot ascent to the city of Jerusalem. Remember as well that this is Passover season. Jesus and his disciples are going for Passover, for the Passover of Passovers. And because it's Passover season, there would have been probably beggars all over alongside the road, and that's exactly where we find Bartimaeus is on the side of the road. And notice what happens, verse 46, when he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he, Bartimaeus, began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Notice twice, Here in the words of Bartimaeus, he calls Jesus son of David. Son of David is a messianic term. Bartimaeus believes that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah. And notice this beggar Bartimaeus does not ask Jesus for money or fame or position. What he asks Jesus for is mercy. Have mercy on me. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling you. And throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Same question that he asked James and John. In the Greek text, it's written slightly differently, but the meaning is the same. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asks Bartimaeus. Verse 51, And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, 
I want to regain my sight. I want to regain my sight. He addresses Jesus as Rabboni or Rabboni, which is similar to the word rabbi or teacher, but it's heightened just a little bit. In fact, in Jewish literature outside of the New Testament, first century literature outside of the New Testament, this word Rabboni is almost, almost never used in an address to a human being, but it's often used as an address to God in prayer. And I think blind Bartimaeus sees what most people don't see. What Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. And he recognizes that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a rabbi. And he asks Jesus if he can regain his sight. Notice what happens, verse 51. And Jesus said to him, go Your faith has made you well, or literally, your faith has saved you. Immediately, there's another repeated word in the Gospel of Mark, immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus, where? On the road, or literally, on the way. Notice the transformation that takes place with blind Bartimaeus. When Jesus first met Bartimaeus, he was a blind man beside the road. And now at the end of his encounter with Jesus, Bartimaeus not only has his sight, but he's now following Jesus on the road. He's transformed from being beside the way to now on the way with Jesus. Bartimaeus is a great picture of a disciple. So this is Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 52, and it really comes down to that repeated question we see, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? James and John answered that question by saying we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in your, in your glory. James and John were after authority. But later they would learn what true Greatness really is as they give their life in service to Jesus on their way. And likewise, for you and I, I think we should forget about how the world defines greatness and instead see how we can serve people in a way that Jesus describes as greatness. I submit to you that we ought to be asking Jesus this question, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, how can I, as I follow you on the way, how can I serve you and your people, your church? In this passage, Jesus is inviting us to use whatever position, whatever authority, whatever power we have, ultimately in service to others for his name's sake. And so there on the backside of your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. But your one thing for this week is this. It's a real simple question. In what areas of your life is Jesus calling you to be a great servant? In what areas of your life is Jesus calling you to be a great servant?
Let me give you a couple options. You, you can serve in a multitude of places. You can serve inside the church, outside the church, but I want to give you some opportunities right here at Grace Bible Church. Maybe Jesus is calling you to serve in. Um, we're always looking for people to love on our kids and our Grace Kids ministry. We're always looking for people to engage with our, our youth and our Grace Student ministry. Uh, we'd love for you to join our greeting team. Uh, we invite you to, to join our choir, our worship team, our AV team, the, the, the t- remarkable team we have each and every week to, to lead us in worship and to help us be led in worship. Uh, in the announcement video, you saw the, uh, the blast ministry that's starting, really continuing. We've also got Take Heart ministry. We've got a multitude of ministries, a multitude of ways in which if, if I want you to just ask yourself, how is, is perhaps Jesus calling me to serve him by serving his church. So Christmas is quickly approaching. Gift cards galore will be purchased. But even today, pre-Christmas, we can ask the question, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? We get to celebrate the glorious truth that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52, invite us as we follow Jesus on the way to be truly great as we serve others. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, First of all, thank you first and foremost for Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the servant of servants, who laid down his life so that we can be forgiven. And thank you, Father, that this same Jesus invites us to follow him on the way. He invites us to lay aside the world's definition of greatness and to instead embrace, God, your definition of greatness, to be people who are great in our service to others as we serve and as we desire to see more and more people join this journey of discipleship of following Jesus on the way. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the privilege it is to serve you. Thank you for uh, the many, many people here at Grace who do. Father, we just ask that you might, as we, we sing these closing songs together, encourage us and empower us by your spirit as we follow Jesus on the way. We ask in his name, amen.